this shear leading into Rosh Hashanah, I first heard major parts of it from my Rebbe, Rosh Shlomo Tzvi when I was in high school. And I took notes after Yontif, and it's still with me. And I went to see Rav Riskin this week. Uh, he's not so well. He has Parkinson's, and he's getting on Baruch Hashem, but still very sharp. And I uh, took my daughter and my son-in-law to see him so that, you know, to get a bracha, because he's not going to make the wedding. He's unfortunately not able to travel now. And uh, I want to dedicate this year in his honor. And B'tikvah, uh, it should be, B'zrat Hashem, it's for him for a foreshleimah, and he should be healthy and have a lot of nachas. He's just finished writing a sefer. He should get to see it published. And I want you to just understand, you, you don't know who Riskin is. You can look him up online. I promise you I wouldn't be here if not for him. Shali v'shalachem shalahu. That simple, right? So I had a Magad. I had a battalion commander. When I was still in training, I wasn't even a commander yet. Went through a series called Samap Sevet Machlakat Luga. And that's where you're learning how to be a tank crew. Okay, you've, you've done your basic infantry training, you've done your tank school. Now you're practicing how to be part of a crew, a driver. And um, every once in a while you get called for different duties. You, know, you get kitchen duty, you get uh, all sorts of guard duties. I can't believe that you're gonna talk in the middle of this year. Really? Finished? You good? Okay, right? So, so we would get called for Basisi. Basisi meant that you had to do base patrol. Like you had to be on the base, it was a pretty boring duty. And uh, you had to gather in the central square of the base and you know, get a, a briefing as to what you have to do and what the codes are and all this kind of stuff. And then you, know, you would go off on duty. And they gave you all the rules of engagement or whatever. And while we're standing there waiting, I hear this yelling, this screaming. And it looks like it's coming from what I think is the battalion commander's office. Now, I'm only like six months in the army. I'm not, you know, right? <clears throat> screaming, yelling, screaming, and then like, boom! And then it's quiet. And then I see a guy, and he comes out of the room. And he mama has a black eye. This would never fly today. And I'm like, what's going on? What is this? Now, in order to understand this story... You have to understand who our Magad was, who our battalion commander was. His name was Shabam. We called him Shabam Shimon ben Maimon. Okay, the guys also referred to him as Abba. Abba Kois, right? And he was a legend. I mean, just to give you uh, one example. Uh, first of all, if you want to look up a very powerful story, you can look up the Battle of Enschalta, which was uh, the 195th fort in the actual first week of the Lebanon War, and what happened there. And he was the battalion commander during that battle. When they got to the Awali River, they're heading north. When they first, <coughs> when the war started, so the tanks stalled, tanks stopped, <coughs> and he was a battalion commander. Battalion commander is the commander of three companies. Right? Each company is commander of three officers. So this is my commander's commander. This is like big. And he's not the tank in front because he's a battalion commander. But he sees that the tanks are stalled, it's a single file, they get to the Oil River, and he realized that they didn't know exactly where to cross. Now the tanks we were in, right, I, I wasn't there then, the tanks that we were in, they could go into water up to the tuba, up to the top of the tread, but if they went too high, then the water would seep into the tanks and that'd be really bad, right? So you didn't know how deep it was. So you're not sure what to do, and all the tanks are stuff they're trying to debate, how they do, they have a map, what's going on? So he comes up there. Meanwhile, you know, I mean, they're Syrians. 
and there's PLO, there's Fatch, and there's shooting, and there's mortar shells dropping, and everything's going on. And Shabam gets fed up, like, what are we waiting for? This is dangerous. So he jumps off his tank, strides forward, and wades into the river. Wades into the river, right? Got his gun over his back, he says, Yala like, And he just leads the tanks across the Awali River up to his waist. That was Shimon ben Maimon. He was out of his mind. He was a Meshuganet, but the, the guys loved him. Because they would go through hell or high water for him. Now, what was going on is that every Thursday night, and this is true in most of the battalions in the Israeli army, that's the night of court-martials, right? That's the mishpat. A guy went AWOL. Somebody accidentally shot his rifle. They caught a guy stealing. Well, whatever was going on. So they have to be court-martialed. So court-martial means you have to stand, right? Once you're a company commander, you could run a certain level court-martial. And they usually have to be like uh, <clears throat> an officer of a certain level. And there was a whole system. He would come forward. Uh, the, 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 the officer who was charging him would present the case. Somebody else not. He, they would say, do you have anything to say for yourself? And then the, the battalion commander would ch- sentence him. Now there's a concept <coughs> in the army called a tabach, a cook. Cooks are their own world. Right? It's very hard to be a cook. It's not easy work. It's not glamorous. And the guys who were chosen to be cooks, you're not talking about like the elite fighting force of the Israeli army, right? I'll spare you the details. And they very often make a lot of trouble. Like you don't want to mess with the cooks because they don't care. They'll just burn your house down, right? So sometimes these cooks, they, would just, they couldn't handle it and they would just disappear. They would go off and take three days off and nobody could find them or whatever. Now, technically, you could court-martial a guy to prison time. You could sentence him to, you know, depending on your level, 10 days in the brig, 30 days in the brig, you could even, if you were a serious commander, much more than that. And that's what most commanders did. The problem is, if you sentence a guy like that to the brig, it goes on his record, and it could destroy his life. So Shabam would never do that. He had his own system of court-martial. And over the years, I learned this, right? And that was called Mishpat Shabam, a Shabam trial. For a Shabam trial, you went into the office, and I saw guys going, like once I understood what this was, I would sometimes see them. They were terrified. They were terrified to walk into this court martial. Even if the maximum sentence was 10 days in the brig, terrified. They would go in there, right? And he would ring them. He would yell at them and scream at them. And he was a very big, imposing guy, right? And then nobody else was in the room, and the room was closed. You would hear like, all sorts of sounds. And then the guy would come out limping or like holding his face or whatever it might be. And that was the end of Shabbat, Mishpat Shabbat. Anybody who had a Mishpat Shabbat because he went evil, never went evil again. And that to me was the epitome of what a trial was, what judgment is. Like you're scared to go before the judge because you don't know what he's going to do to you. And you know you messed up. And you know that this commander would do anything for you and now you let him down. You, you disappeared, you, you, you slept off duty, you blew your... And they were terrified. And they would come out, right? And they were sometimes shaking when they came out. I don't know what he said to them. I never had a mishpat shabam. And I heard the yelling and the screaming. But I know that, and I asked a few guys, anybody who went AWOL on shabam never went AWOL again. Not sure why. Now, why do I tell you this whole story? Because we're about to start the year. How do we start the year? Think about how we started our year. Let's do a circle. Let's get to know each other's names. What appliance would you be? <coughs> let's, introduce, let's share over Shabbos. Let's go sit in the park and play name games. I'll flow you a fluffy toy. Let's go swimming. Like, that's how you start a year. 
By the time we got through Shabbos, and you finally have like a full serious week ahead of you, I'll bet some of you were actually excited to get to learning. Certainly Thursday morning, the first day of learning. But that's not what we do. How do we start our year? Yom Adin. Judgment Day. Wow, that's intense. Why do we start our day with Din? So you say, well, because like we got to pay for, we got we to gotta do the, we got to go before the judge. What do we do this year? Why don't you end the year with judgment and start the year with something better? I want to understand what that is. Now, I don't know that we're going to have a chance, because it's getting late, to talk about Din. We will get to talk about Din. But that's my first question. What is Yom Adin? Now, the Gemara, the Gemara has a fascinating discussion. It's Gemara in, in Rosh Hashanah, and Davchav Teramudben. We have a unique situation this year. Okay? And it'll be interesting. One of the interesting things is that on the first day of Rosh Hashanah, we're actually going to finish Musaf earlier. And we're going to get to lunch earlier. Why? Because we're not blowing shofar. There's no shofar blasts. Now, this is going to be hard for the Shana Aleph guys because it's going to leave you in suspense. Because you've never heard about Tokea, like of Judah. I don't want to cast aspersions, but I've heard a lot about Yitzkiah. I've been Zohar to Tzadikim Never had a Baal like of Judah. And you're just going to have to trust me the first day because you're not going to hear the shofar. Now, why are you not going to hear the shofar? Very simple. It's a mission in Rosh Hashanah. Okay? Yom Tov Shel Rosh Hashanah. This is the beginning of the fourth parak. This is the most amazing parak in Rosh Hashanah. It's one of the most amazing parak in Shas, but I'm not going to go there Yom Tov Shel Rosh Hashanah Shechal Yotu Shabbat. If Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbat, Bamikdash, are you talking? They would blow in the base of Mikdash. But not in the rest of the country. And that's an interesting Machlokas, Rashi, Rambab, whether that includes your slime, doesn't include your slime. But in the Mikdash you would blow, but not the rest of the place. You wouldn't blow. Mishacharav Beis HaMikdash, when the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed. So if they only blew so far on Shabbat in the Beit HaMikdash, now we don't have a Beit HaMikdash. What should happen? Nobody blows so far. Not exactly. Right? <coughs> Hitkin Rabbi Yochanan Menzakai. Rabbi Yochanan Menzakai was the head of the Sanhedrin. You will remember him from the well-known story about being smuggled out in the middle of the revolt, you know, sort of to get out of the siege of Yerushalayim. Rabbi Yochanan Menzakai was a legend. He ended up establishing the Sanhedrin, re-establishing the Sanhedrin, which had actually disbanded where? In Yavne. You can actually visit the site where the Sanhedrin sat, right? He went into Galut, 10 different places, whatever, right? That you could blow shofar wherever there was a bed. Wherever there was a court. That's interesting. You could blow in the base of Mikdash. Now there's no base of Mikdash. You can blow in a court. But you can't blow on Shabbos. But you can blow on Shabbos if there's a bed in a court. Why? Okay. Amar Rabbi Lazar, Lo hitkin Rabbi Yochum and Zakai Rabbi Yavne Bilvai. Rabbi Lazar says, Nope, only in Yavne. Only in front of the Sanhedrin in Yavne. They would blow so far on Shabbat in any place that was a Bezdin. Now, this is interesting. Because what do we have to do? We're in Yeshiva. What do we have to do? Come on. We have to define our terms. What's a Bezdin? What does that mean? So it's actually Machlokas. Rashi says, what's a Bezdin that you can blow in front of? on Shabbat, even on Shabbat. Mm-hmm. That is, 
Shahaita Sham Sanhedrin Gedola. That's where the Sanhedrin sat. The 71 judges. The Sanhedrin, the high court. In front of a Sanhedrin, you could blow. So now let's think about this. In the base of Mikdash, you could blow. Now I don't have a base of Mikdash. So you could blow in front of the Sanhedrin. So what does it mean? The Sanhedrin takes the place of the base of Mikdash. Okay. Then Rashi gives a second possibility. Right? He says, no, but you can't necessarily blow in front of a Bezin of 23. And there's a day that says, Dafki, you can blow in 23. And that might even be the second opinion of Rashi. So now I have two possibilities. Bezdin is a Bezdin of a Sanhedrin. Or it could be a miniature Sanhedrin of 23 judges. What's the difference between a Sanhedrin and 23 judges? Why would you have that debate? Why is that what allows you to blow a shofar on Rosh Hashanah? Right? And then you have another opinion, which is the Rambam. The Rambam, can't have a share without the Rambam. The Rambam in Hilcha Shofar. Where do I find Hilcha Shofar? Zmanim, good, right? Laws of things that occur frequently in time. So in Perak Ber Tet of the Rambam's Hilcha Shofar, Ubizman Azer Shachar of Beis Mikdash, today when we have no Beis Mikdash, no temple, Kol Makom Shiyeshbo Bezdin, any place where there's a Bezdin, Kavua, Tokin Bo Shabbat. If you have a regular Bezdin, you can blow in front of it on Shabbos. But that Bezdin has to have sanctified the new moon. Now that's interesting because a Bezdin, in order to sanctify the new moon, right, actually has to be a much bigger court. It might even be a Sanhedrin, but we're not going to go there. Right? But you can't blow on Shabbos if you're not in front of a Bezdin. And the Ramam adds something. He says, He says, Right? Whatever the problem is with blowing the on Shabbat won't happen if you're in front of a Bezdin. So now I have a Sanhedrin, a Sanhedrin of 23, or a Bezdin that was from Kadosh HaKodesh. Right? The two witnesses come and they determine that they're correct. They grill them separately. They determine that they're correct in assessing with a little sliver of light they saw is in fact Rosh Chodesh and they declare Rosh Chodesh. And then there's a fourth opinion. And the fourth opinion is the Rif. The Rif of Yitzhak Al-Fasi who sat in Fez in Morocco and he was one of their name of Rashi, big. We could talk about the Rif some other time. The Rif says that you could blow in front of any Bezdin Kavua. Any set Bezdin that sits regularly. You know, it's, we, what's a Bezdin that's not Kavua? Is you know, me and Eliyahu and Yoni we get together in Erev Rosh Hashanah tomorrow morning and we do what? What? Ataris Nadarim. In case you made a commitment, a, a promise, and you didn't fulfill the promise, or you're not sure you're going to keep it, so you could do Ataris Nadarim. You could release yourself from vows. So, how are we a Bezdin? Like, you know, we don't know enough to be a Bezdin. No, it's called the Bezdin Shaladyotet. It's not a Kavua Bezdin. That, the Rift says you can't do. And by the way, just interestingly enough, the Ran on the Daf and the Rif, right? Rabbeinu Nisim Gorandi writes comments on the Rif. The Ran says the Rif actually did this. He says that the, the Rif had a Bezdin Kabua, and in front of his Bezdin, they blew shofar on Rosh Hashanah and Shabbos. Unbelievable. Now, why can't you blow Rosh Hashanah and Shabbos? So here, too, the Gemara helps us out. What does the Gemara say? The Gemara says, and you know this, right? Amru b'chamer b'chanina, katu v'echadomer shabbaton zichron chua. In one Pasuk, in Parshas Emor, it says... Actually, we should read the Pasuk, right? The Parsha in Emor says... 
Oh, I'm in the wrong one second. Um, that you should blow the shofar, it should be a zichron shua. Right? But in Bamidbar, it says, So one pasuk says yom trua, it's a day of blowing. The other one says zichron trua. Right? So what does he say? What does Rabbi Brachama say? He says, no. Um, ele, uh, Lo kasha, kan b'yomtav shechaliyot b'shabbat, kan b'yomtav shechaliyot b'chol. One person is talking about when it's a regular weekday, Rosh Hashanah, and the other person is talking about Shabbos. So now, what does that mean? He's learning from Pasuk that you can't blow shofar on Shabbos. So does that mean it's an issue to raisa not to blow shofar on Shabbos? Yes. Okay. What's the problem with that? Pardon? I can't hear you. <coughs> It's a mitzvah of on Shabbos. Maybe it's an issue to rise and blow it on Shabbos. What's the problem with that? They say that you can blow it in some cases. You can blow it on Shabbos. In the base of Mikdash. How could you blow it on Shabbos in the if it's an issue to rise? Right? And how could Rav Yochum and Zakai be metakin to blow it in Yavne if it's an issue to rise? So the Gemara actually agrees. The Gemara says, no, 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 that doesn't make any sense. Amar Rava, imidoraisa, ibamikdash echitakina. If it's midoraisa, how could you blow it in the base of Mikdash? Can't be. He says, rather, what is it? Right? Ella. The Pasuk says, right? Kol Malach Tasu, right? You're not allowed to do a Malacha on Shabbos. Yotzat Kiya Shofar Udiyasapashi Chachma. Vein a Malacha. Right? Certain things are not considered a Malacha. There's no reason you can't do them on Shabbos. Rudiyatapat has to do with a Chachma of scraping the, the bread off the, the oven wall. I'm not going to get into that now. A blowing shofar is not a malacha. What's the malacha? What's the label? What's the isra d'oraisa and blowing shofar? Says I. So so ella amaratha midoraita mitra shari. It's mutter midoraisa. You're allowed from the Torah to blow a shofar on Shabbos. What's the problem? Ella amaratha. Right. Oh, sorry. For rabbanan who degazube, kid a rabbi. Rabbanan decreed you can't blow a shofar on Shabbos like rabbi. Amaratha kol chayavim b'tkiya shofar ve'ina kol b'kiyim b'tkiya shofar. Because everybody's obligated to blow shofar, but not everybody knows how to blow shofar. Gzeira shemi yitlenu biyado v'yelechet zalabaki. So a person might need to blow shofar. He might need to learn. So he'll take it to a baki, someone who knows, and he'll say, right? Lil Mo, teach me how to blow shofar. Yavi renu dalin amos b'rshusarav. Right? And he'll, he'll end up carrying on chops. And the Gemara adds, V'hainu tam adalulav. That's why we don't bench lulav. We don't do the Abhimim on Shabbos on Sukkot. V'hainu tam ad Megillah. And that's why we don't read Megillah, because the person might carry the Megillah. So we don't blow shofar, because you might come to carry. Now, let's think about this for a minute. This is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. The shofar is the mitzvah. It's the central mitzvah of the day. The Gemara says that the shofar causes Hashem to alight from his kisei hadin, from justice, and to sit on kisei arachim, the throne of mercy. It arouses the Kodesh Baruch whatever that means. It's supposed to arouse us to tshuva. It's the only central mitzvah of the day, which is midaraisa and verishudar. Written in the Torah, you have to blow shofar. And we don't blow shofar because somebody who wants to learn how to blow shofar might then walk on Rosh Hashanah. And be over in Isra Doraisa and Rosh Hashanah to learn how to blow a shofar. How many guys could that apply to? When I was in the army, we were in officers, of course. 
And we were supposed to get out for Rosh Hashanah. And this was huge. Because that year Rosh Hashanah was, I forget what it was, Sunday, Monday, Monday, Tuesday, there was going to be a Gesher. A Gesher means you already have Shabbos, you're off for Shabbos, you're off for Rosh Hashanah. It doesn't make sense to come back and go back. So we were going to get like five, six days off. This is unbelievable. Everybody was looking forward to this. And, and Kurs Tineshu Yom was the hardest course I was ever in. It's one of the five hardest courses in the Israeli army. You sleep like three hours a night. It's horrendous. And we were going to get five days off. And I was, I was dreaming. I was going back to Yeshiva. And it wasn't just a, I was going to have Shabbos off, be with my brother, and then go to Yeshiva. Rested. For Russia, unbelievable. It's about two weeks before Rosh Hashanah, maybe three. And we're, it's like two o'clock in the morning. We finished all our maneuvers, day, night, whatever. And they call us together in a chet. You know, we all have to get a briefing. And the mempei comes out. And he says, okay, you want the good news or the bad news? You don't want to hear that in the army. You really don't want to hear that in the army. So everybody said, tell us the bad news first. So he says, well, the bad news is you're not getting out for Rosh Hashanah. We've been put on Konanut, thank you. We've been put on Konanut, we're going to be on alerts. We, we're not getting out for Rosh Hashanah. And you could just see everybody like sag. It was a Thursday night, we weren't getting out for Shabbos. Everybody was talking about, oh, it's a dikaon. So depressing. So somebody says, so what's the good news? He says, well, the good news is that you, that we've been tasked with doing shmirat, guard duty. There are a lot of tourists expected. There are security alerts. So we're going to be going down to a lot to do shmirat on the beach. And we'll do it in pairs, and you'll have plenty of time to, to relax, and you can go swimming in a cold tub, and we'll go to the beach. And I'll go say, oh, yeah, we're going to a lot. And he said, don't worry, we'll make it up to you, get a regular And everybody's like happy. We're going to a lot for Rosh Hashanah. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, a lot? For Rosh Hashanah, like there's the Swedish bikini team. Oh my God! I'm like, they're in Gan Eden. I'm in Gehenna. Now I'm not like super Jew or super, but like, oh come on, a lot on the beach for Rosh Hashanah. Oh. So then he says, we need three volunteers though to stay here. My hand shot up. I'm like, I volunteer to stay. Like I don't want to be in a lot for Rosh Hashanah. <coughs> so next thing I know, instead of getting out for five six days, I'm going to be doing pshit. Now it's not the end of the world. Because once you're a skeleton crew of like three, six guys, I think it was six guys, we have to guard the tanks and we take turns. The rest of the time you're free. There's no sergeant, there's no one to bother you. You know, you get a good safer, get a good book, you can chill, get some... And I'm okay with that and I just like resign myself. And then I suddenly realize I have a problem. Like the idea of having a minion there was, that wasn't going to happen. But how am I going to hear a chauffeur? So I start asking around. I figure maybe there's a rabbi. Nope. There wasn't, like, the whole base is, is, is absent. They don't assume they need one. There's nobody coming to blow a chauffeur. So I have a panic attack. How am I going to get a chauffeur? So I decided I need to learn how to blow a chauffeur. So I convinced them to give me 24 hours off, okay, so that I can go back to yeshiva, find someone to teach me how to blow a chauffeur. And that's exactly what I did. Now you have to understand, I was all the way down in the desert. We're, like, an hour north of Eilat. It took me, like, six or seven hours to get to yeshiva. I got to spend like five or six hours there, and then I had to go all the way back, because I was nervous about it, I couldn't miss time. And I managed to get a hold of Rav Ezra Bik, who was the Baltokea in Gush, and I sat with him for a couple hours, he taught me the basic halachos, and for the next two weeks, every time we finished patrol, or fin- finished our maneuvers, we were in a course, I would go down to Mishtach Tankim, blowing shofar, just trying to practice shofar, the basic 30 colors. They must have thought I was out of my mind. Like, everybody's exhausted, they're going to sleep, and then Binny's out, they're going, it's like two weeks before the Mitzvah, was nuts. And I was really nervous, like, big Mitzvah, Mitzvah, the Rice, are you going to be a Vatel and Kiyosh Gopher? 
It turned out it was incredibly meaningful Rosh Hashanah because I was up in a guard tower and I got to blow and it was meaningful and I dominated at my own pace. Why do I tell you this whole story? Seriously? Somebody doesn't know how... I, I mean, I'm tense about this and think about this for weeks. Somebody's just going to wake up on Rosh Hashanah, he doesn't know how to blow a shofar, he's going to go find a shofar, find someone who knows how to blow a shofar and walk and carry Dalai on Rosh Hashanah and because of this idiot, all of Amisol doesn't blow a shofar on Rosh Hashanah. That's ridiculous. What is this halacha? It must be. And by the way, what is the malacha we're worried about? The malacha we're worried about is carrying. What kind of a malacha is carrying? You know, if you go to a field, like what is a malacha? What does it mean? Most people think a malacha is to do work. But that can't be true. And I'll prove it to you. Okay? If... If I want to give a, a Dvar Torah and there's a whole group of soldiers and they're down somewhere, okay, and, and I'm going to give a Dvar Torah. So I write Dvar Torah down on a piece of paper, right? Just close the, close the windows. That's the way to do it, right? And I write it on a piece of paper and I suddenly realize that I'm carrying under the Aruf. So I can't carry. So I have to take the piece of paper, put it on the side, and now I carry. Because that's a malacha. What kind of work is that? On the other hand, if I came to the base members and it's Friday night and I realize nothing is set up and I want to have a tish or I want to, you know, we want to have a, <coughs> I don't know, daven. So nobody's here. So I say, you know, I'll do a mitzvah and I take all the chairs and I set them all up and I move all the tables. And by the time I'm done, I'm sweating. Am I allowed to do that on Shabbos? Absolutely. That's not work. So clearly work is not what we think work is. Now, by the way, the Pasuk says in Shabbos, Six days you shall work, right? Right? So six days you can do avudah, you can do malacha. On Shabbos, you can't do malacha. So malacha you do during the week. You can't do it on Shabbos. Avoda you can do during the week. But it doesn't say you can't do avoda on Shabbos. So it must be that there are two categories. Avoda and malacha. What's the difference in And why is carrying? You know, Toso says that carrying is malacha grua. Rav Shem Shem Hirsch says, you know, what, you, know what, you know what malacha is on Shabbos? Malacha is when you produce a difference in the world. If I take a pen and a piece of paper and I write letters on a piece of paper, a word, then I've changed something in the world. There's something there that wasn't there before. Right? I come to a field. It's an empty field. I plow it. I sow seeds. I, I reap it eventually. I, I take that, 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 that wheat that I've reaped and I grind it and I winnow it and I thresh it, and then I grind it and then I take that, that ground wheat and I mix it with water and I knead it and then I have dough and I bake it. Look at all that work. And I have a piece of bread. There's a field and a piece of bread. Totally changed. The whole world's different. But carrying? What is carrying? Right? I pick something up, okay? Because I think I need it. I pick it up in a Rishusayach in an individual domain. Akira, I pick it up. I take it to a Rishusayach in a public domain and I put it down. Anacha. That is a Malacha Doraisa. Then I realize, oh, 
I brought the wrong cap. I don't need this. I pick it up again. Akira. I take it to Rosh Hashanah, back to the individual domain. I put it down. I've done another malacha. Two malachas. And I've done absolutely nothing. It's right where it started. Tosos Megillah calls this a malacha garua. It's like, it's not a serious malacha. What am I producing? What am I... What difference am I making in the world? And how does this relate to Rosh Hashanah? Right? Why don't we blow shofar on Shabbat and Rosh Hashanah? By the way, one last question. Right? Can you blow shofar on Yom Kippur? Anybody know? We actually learned the kolos. And I'm seeing this late, so I don't have time to go into this. We learned the sounds of the shofar on Rosh Hashanah from Yom Kippur of Yovel. Right? The Pasuk uh, on Yom Kippur says, V'avarta shofar truah b'chodesh ha-shvi'i b'asor l'chodesh b'yom ha-kippurim. Taviru shofar b'chol ha-tzechem. It says, V'avarta shofar truah, right? The, the blast. B'chodesh ha-shvi'i b'asor l'chodesh on the seventh month and the tenth day, which is, what's the tenth day of the seventh month? Yom Kippur, Right? It says shofar tura shofar. What do we learn from shofar tura shofar? There are three different sounds of the shofar. What are they? Shvarim, tura, tkia. We learn the sounds. The whole mitzvah shofar comes from Yova. This is at the end of the fiftieth year, on Yom Kippur, right? That's the jubilee year. Or actually, it's yeah. Right. Can you blow shofar on Yom Kippur? Anybody know? You can. In fact, it's interesting. The Sfardim or Makvid to finish Ne'ilah, the last prayer of the day, before Shkia, the old Sfardim Minagim, so that they can blow Shofar before Ne'ilah Char, before the closing of the gates of mercy of Yom Kippur. The Ashkenazim don't do this, and we're Makvid, like many of you shown him, not to do it until after Tzais, until after the stars come out. Why? Because people would go home and eat. There are a lot of people who just will not eat until they hear the shofar. When I was a kid growing up, they used to come back to Shul to hear the shofar. So Ravriskin was Makbid, and this is basically Shonim and Halacha, that we don't blow shofar until after Tzitzah Kochavim, so that nobody should think the fast is over and eat. But not because you're not allowed to blow shofar. You're allowed to blow shofar on Rosh Hashanah, on Yom Kippur. So I understand. If you're allowed to blow shofar on Yom Kippur, why are you not allowed... Uh, sorry, why are you not allowed to blow shofar on Rosh Hashanah? And this is actually a Tosos. This is a Tosos in, in, in Tosos Megillah, I think. Yeah, listen to this. This is Tosos in Megillah. Right? Mishal Luri. Luri asks, Eich Tokin, this is on Daf Dalet Amad the fourth folio of, of Megillah. Eich Tokin B'Motzi Yom Kippurim. How could you blow, even according to those who say you blow after Shkia, Right? If somebody's going to learn how to blow shofar, he's not going to show up then. He's going to come in the afternoon. It's the same problem. He's going to carry Dalai Lama's Jerusalem. So why are you allowed to blow on Yom Kippur? You can't do malacha until you do Avdallah. And so the guy... You should have the same worry that you have on Rosh Hashanah when it falls on Shabbos. Yom Kippur is always Shabbos. Yom Kippur is Shabbat Shabbaton. We should have been, you know, sort of nervous about this decree and also not blow on Yom Kippur. But Tiret, so he explained, since Tkiah Shofar is a Chachma, it's not a Malacha, 
ואין מלאכה, וגם לא חשין אנשי מלאכה אצל בקי, כי משום תרוע אחת שאין אלה משום זכר ליובל, לא יצטרך כולי האש. זה איזה בלאסט, יום you כיפור know, זה רק אחד בלאסט. What is Shabbat? What does it mean to carry? You know? One of the kinyanim that we make, right? If you want to make a business deal and I want to buy something from you and we want to demonstrate that the deal is done, you can sign a document, a star. You can do a kinyan mashicha. I can take the item and pull it and demonstrate control over it, right? Or a kinyan agba. When I carry something, I demonstrate ownership. Right? What's the fundamental difference between... Here, stand up. Okay? Hold up your watch. Okay. What's the difference? This is a good one. What's the difference between his watch and my watch? Fundamental difference. What? Mine's on my wrist. His is on his wrist. What's the difference? Ah! The biggest difference between this watch and this watch is that this one's mine. When I carry something, I demonstrate that I own it. And Shabbos, Shabbos is the day we remember well, we don't own anything. Nothing's really ours. You know? Milton Steinberg was a well-known author. He's actually a conservative rabbi who I think became deeply, much more religious or much more committed in his own way to, 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 to all sorts of things as he, as he neared the end of his life. He died very young in his 50s of a terrible heart attack. And he had a series of heart attacks before that. And, you know, back then, he wrote, by the way, if you want to read a book by Milton Steinberg, he wrote a book called As a Driven Leap. It's an incredible book, magnificent book. It's, it's a fiction account of the story of Revelisha ben who was the Anasin Hedrin and became an Apikarist, Sigmar and Chagiga, unbelievable. And he, he, he imagines, based on historical research, what that must have been about. It's a fascinating book, well worth the read. I'm not convinced you should read it in the base manners, but it's definitely great lunchtime reading. And he had a heart attack, a major heart attack. He was in the hospital for many weeks, and he finally got out. It was actually the heart attack before the heart attack that killed him. And he came back to Shul, he was a pulpit rabbi, and they really wanted him to give it to Russia to give the sermon, and he said, he's just too weak. But they prevailed upon him, so finally he said, look, I, I can't give a sermon, but I will tell you one thing that I've learned from this whole experience. He writes, embrace the world, but with open arms. Right? First parak above Metziah, Shnai Moksim. Two guys are hanging on to a garment, each one says they found it. Anybody learn that? That Mishnah? Where does the, the Mishnah say? How are we passing? Yachloku. It's not clear. We're passing away, but whatever. They split it up. And the whole parak there, very good. The whole parak there is a series of cases where two people have equal, semi legitimate claims. And we don't know how to resolve it, so we let them split it. But there's an exception. And that's the case of Ahu Arbe. It's a boat. 
and the boat's not in front of us. That's why it's called Ahu Arba. There's a boat out there somewhere. And two guys come for a Bezdin, and they each say it's theirs. Right? Okay. And then there's another case. Right? There's a piece of land. This one says it's mine. I inherited it. And this one says it's mine. I inherited it. The only problem is they have no proof. So they come to a Bezdin. They're trying to resolve this. And the Bezdin says, finally, look, you know, you have no star and you have no star. You have no contract. You have no edus. You have no witnesses. You don't even have chazaka. You don't even have some ability to testify that you've been living there to establish ownership. Right? So the Bezdin just, you know, it says, Kol Daling Var. Very good. Which means what? Kol Dalim, whoever's stronger, Gavar, let him overcome. By the way, by the way, as an aside, this isn't our topic, but as an aside, there is an unbelievable rush. You did this last week with Tabitha Pardon? You said this last week with Tabitha splitting the... Oh, right, 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 okay. There's an unbelievable rush. Very good. And honest, too. There's, a, there's an unbelievable rush. Rabbeinu Asher. Rabbeinu Asher was the, one of the last of Rishonim. He was the father of the tour. Big. Very big. He was one of the few who, who straddled Ashkenaz and Sfar. He came from, I believe, Germany. And he went to Toledo, to Spain. And he had lots of issues there, but whatever. Anyway, the rush says as follows. That's a crazy psak. So the Rishonim say it's not a psak. It's an ipsak. It's covered Bezdin. How can a Bezdin deliver a verdict when they have no proof? They might get it wrong. Okay, fine. The rush says, you know what you learned from this case? You learn that if you really believe in something, you have to be willing to fight for it. That's what he says. If you really believe in something, you have to be willing to fight for it. Now, what do you think of when you hear that rush? Yeah, that's the Midianite Israel. The Farish. No other way to look at that rush. But that is why I brought this up. So this is a Medrash. It's Medrash Halacha, and it quotes this case. It's crazy Medrash. Same case. Two litigants come before the Bezdin. This one says it's mine. This one says it's mine. It's my land. I inherited it from my father. I knew it from my father. Bezdin's, so the Rebbe, the Bezdin, I look at him as a Hasidic Rebbe. You'll hear why in a second, right? Although it was long before Hasidus. The Rebbe looks at him and says, look, you have no star. You have no star. Right? We asked you both your cases. You have no witnesses. You have no... So you know what? Let's ask the land whose it is. Now, I imagine these two litigants are looking at this rabbi and they're thinking, all right, we're in cuckoo for Cocoa Bus land. Like, we picked the wrong judge. And the Medrash has the Rebbe lean over and cup his ear to the land. And he straightens up and he looks at them. Now, hear this well. And he says, it's, the land says it's not yours. And it's not yours. You're its. Ki tashuv. We come from the earth and we go back to the earth. We don't own anything in this world. Carrying, the Isra of carrying is meant to remind me that we don't own things in this world. We're meant to think about why we're given these things. If there is a day, and we're almost done, if there is a day when we should appreciate that Hashem owns the world, it's Rosh Hashanah. If on Rosh Hashanah, even the remotest possibility that somebody could carry, it would undermine everything we're trying to do on that day. And that's why we don't blow even the shofar. In order to remember that we shouldn't carry. Unbelievable idea. And just to finish it off, the Rif, the Rambam, Rashi. Think about it. There's a halacha, Ein Shvut Bamikdash. Why are you allowed to blow in the base of Mikdash? Right? Because in the base of Mikdash, 
Shvut, a rabbinic decree, does not apply. It doesn't apply. This is interesting. When they build the base of Mikdash, and we're up on Harabait, okay, you could keep your pen in your pocket. In fact, I have this theory, right? Because there's no decree. Now, why is there no decree? Why would Rabbanan's decree not apply in the base of Mikdash? Because think about it, where a rabbinic decree is. We're afraid. Somebody's going to forget where they are. They're not going to feel the moment. And they're going to forget. They're going to start carrying in Shabbos. But if you're in the base of Mikdash, if you feel the presence of Hashem, how could you possibly? There's no way you're going to accidentally carry if you're in the base of Mikdash. So therefore, inch for Right? Let's say I'm working on cursing. And I'm afraid, and I, you know, I keep forgetting, and I'm trying. If I'm sitting in front of a Vuchasin, I'm not worried. There's no way you could come to curse sitting in front of a Vuchasin. So you're Bifnei Kosh Baruch So what's a Bezdin? So if, you, if the Beis HaMikdash gives you the sense of awe of being in the presence of Hashem, that's what a Sanhedrin does. When you sit in front of a Sanhedrin, right? Kechol Asher Yerucha, the Bezdin takes, right? They, they have to determine Allah. So they take the place of Akash Baruch What's a base in Shalchav Gimel 23, a small Sanhedrin? They have the right to determine, anybody know? Capital cases. You need a minimum of 23 judges to determine a death sentence. If a Bezdin can sit there and determine a death sentence, where do we get that idea from? Right? We say, Alpi Alacha, right? Right? If a person put, kills someone, so human beings can kill him. We take the place of Akash Baruch When you're standing in front of a Sanhedrin Katana of 23 judges, it's like you're in the presence of Hashem. Why does the Ramam say, if it's a Bezdin that was Makadesh Lechodesh, that sanctifies the moon? Because what gives the Bezdin powerful to determine? Do you remember the famous case of Rabbi Gamliel and Rabbi Yeshua? Rabbi Gamliel said, this is the day of Yom Kippur. Rabbi Yeshua was an astronomer. He said, that's the day. Rabbi Gamliel makes him come to his Bezdin, to his Bezdin, on his day that was Yom Kippur. Because he says, it's not a Kosh Baruch who determines when Yom Kippur is. We do. Right? We are given the gift to determine time. A Bezdin that can do that takes the presence of a Kosh Baruch Hu, and therefore you can be in awe in front of the Bezdin. And what does the riff say? The riff says, any Bezdin Kavua. What do we call a judge in the Torah? Elohim. That's the name. Elohim. We don't say Elohim, we say Elohim. Because a judge, a Kosh Baruch Hu says, you will stand in my place. Rosh Hashanah is about attempting to be in a state of awe. <coughs> To know, why don't you, to recognize that we don't own anything in this world, <coughs> that Hashem runs the world, and that's why we don't blow so far on Jabez. I was one time in the, in the, in the courtyard of, of the same base, and a guy came out of this Mishpat Shabbat, and I'm telling you, the guy looked like he'd been beaten. It was a remarkable thing. And I, I remember struggling with it, and on the other hand, they loved him. And I overheard him say to another chayal, he had like a smile on his face. It was a harrowing experience for these guys. And, and I later found out what Shabbat would do for them and go to their houses and you know, help support their family. I mean, it was unbelievable. He came out and he looked at somebody and said, Avakois, daddy's mad. 
He looked at him as Abba. You know, they found a sitter. They were doing excavations in Treblinka. And there's an area in Treblinka where they would go down, and that's where they were murdered. And they found a sitter. And in the sitter, in the title page of the sitter, it was like, you know, Hashem Yikom Dam of his wife and his woman. I forget the name of the fellow, but if you're curious, I can look it up. And he has two words in there that he wrote in what looks like blood. It says, Tata Nekama. Father, revenge. Avenge our deaths. Do you understand this? A Jew is in Treblinka. He's been through the Warsaw Ghetto. He's probably seen, I mean, there were names of his loved ones, his wife, his, his daughter, his son. He saw them murdered. And everything is going on. And he wants revengeance. And he talks to Kosh Baruch And he still calls Kosh Baruch Tata, Father. It's unbelievable. And Rosh Hashanah, we remember. You know why we have Yom Ad-Din? What does Yom Ad-Din mean? It means you're judged. When you're judged, it means that what you do matters. It means that what you do matters. And I'll just finish with this one line. You know, we don't do this enough for you. It's, it's our challenge. I remember when I was in Shiva, people would get nervous around now. There was a certain tension. Like, am I going to be forgiven? If you go to the Haredi world, there's like a little sense of fear. Like, I'm going to be judged. Can I do tshuva? And if Shlomo Kalbach, supposedly, he used to be in a happy mood all through Elul. So one day, one of us said to him, like, why are you so happy? It's Elul. Yom Adin is approaching. It's judgment day. And Shlomo Kalbach smiled and he said, it's true. We're going to be judged. But I'll let you in on a secret. The judge is my dad. Understand? We struggle with those two tensions. We struggle with those two tensions. So Hashem should bless us as we approach Rosh Hashanah. That we should appreciate what a gift it is that we're here. That we should succeed in tasting even just a little bit. That we're always in the presence of Hashem, but particularly on Rosh Hashanah. And that we should know that we own nothing. We're given everything, and we have to decide what to do with it. It should be a ktiva v'chatima tova. Please make sure that we put the tablecloths properly, that this space matters. We leave here. It looks proper for Rosh Hashanah.